Shout out a couple of your favorites. What are your favorite Christmas movies? Elf. It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, The Grinch. Okay, so we're going to be watching some of these right here on Sunday morning. And if you think that's weird for church, I do too. It's going to be so much fun. Um, we're going to be watching stuff like A Christmas Story, Elf, uh, Polar Express. And here's what we want to do. We, we realize that stories connect with people, right? There's a reason we like these movies. Jesus used stories all the time. When he taught people about the eternal truths about who God is, he used stories to connect them back to this story that God's written in their hearts from all eternity. We want to use these stories in the exact same way because we believe, believe it or not, a Christmas story actually points you back to God. Whoa, it's going to be a lot of fun. So invite your friends to come because we're going to have a lot of fun every Sunday in December, okay? So mark that on your calendar. Last, if you are not a part of a community group yet, we have these groups that are scattered all over Nashua. We've got five of them now uh, in Merrimack, Nashua, um, and they are homes. Um, they're, they're groups of people that actually have conversations in various homes around the area because we believe that we don't want you to just sit in a seat and consume information. We want you to develop relationships with people and actually be part of our family. And that's what groups are all about. And we have people who don't believe at all in God, a part of these groups. And we have people who've been a part of church their whole life. And it's really cool that we get to actually have a family and develop a family, no matter where you are on that religious spectrum, and have conversations about faith in a really genuine, authentic way. So you're welcome. And if you want more information about that, check out the hallway in the back. They've got a lot more information about our groups, where they are, what they talk about, and where they meet. So anyway. Glad you're here. I want you to do this right before we're about to check out um, our, our next part in our series uh, that we're beginning a brand new series today. Check this video out and we'll be right back. Our brand new series today we're calling The Beautiful Way. Why? Because we believe that God actually wants to remake all of us just like he was remaking whatever that is, glass, metal, I don't even know what it was, but he's remaking it into something a lot better than what it started. Okay, so here's what we've been doing. We've been following Jesus in his famous message, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. Uh, we'd love to give that to you. If you don't have one at all, that is our gift to you. Uh, we'll also have some stuff up on the screen, but you can follow us there. But we've been looking at Jesus' most famous teaching in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 um, that articulates a little bit more about who he is and what it means to follow him in recreating the world. You see, this is just historical fact. The world has not looked the same since Jesus entered the scene 2,000 years ago. He did something that remade the world. Literally shifted a ton of categories by creating a movement of people that would upend the world. But he wasn't just out to change circumstances. We've been looking at this for the past 11 weeks. He's not out there to just change circumstances as if you had a, a better home or better finances or a better political system, as if that would solve all your, your problems. No, he came to actually recreate people. 
and change the people that would change the world. And so in the first eight weeks, we looked at these values, these core values of Jesus that would actually uh, so dig deep into the lives of people in a countercultural way that it would literally change who they were. That's what Jesus did. It's amazing stuff. But from there, we also learned, man, these people are not just changed on the inside. They do influence the world. And they make the world a different, better place. So Jesus said, there's two things that I want to mark your identity as followers of Jesus. Okay? What were they? Salt and light. He said, you are, this is your new identity, you are salt and you are light. Now, if you've never heard that before, you're like, that's really weird. What do you mean by that? Okay, this is what he meant. Salt in the first century served two purposes. It was a flavorer, right? Like we use salt to make things better tasting, but it was also a preservative. In the first century, they had no refrigeration. And so the one way to preserve meat and make it last longer was to drain the blood out of it and then rub salt into it. You had to really rub salt into it to protect it from decaying and rotting. Otherwise, that's exactly what would happen. And so Jesus says, that's who you are now. As followers of Jesus, I want you to be so rubbed into the fabric of this world, in your workplace and in your neighborhoods and in your families and with your friends. I want you to be so ingrained into their life that when you breathe the love of God into them, you actually preserve the world. We ought to be preservative agents that when we're seeing some of the things that are unraveling around us, whether it's the heroin epidemic or families breaking apart or, I mean, you name it, mess, messed up stuff in the workplace. Like, we ought to be those people who are stepping in and making a difference and preserving it from rotting and decaying. That's who we are as salt. And as light, man, we're supposed to enter in and, and make things brighter. <laughs> we, I asked this question last week and I could see it written all over your faces. When you think about Christians... And you think about church and like when a Christian walks into a room, do you feel better about yourself or worse? A lot of the time when people think about the church, they feel worse about themselves. And I'm telling you right now, that's not what Jesus said. When Christians walk into a room, the whole atmosphere in that room ought to rise. And people ought to feel like all the blessings of light, like that it gives warmth, it gives color to a room. It, it helps uh, things come alive. Literally, we cannot live in our world without light. That ought to happen when followers of Jesus walk into a room. So that's who we are. Now, this was so radical in the first century. This was so radical that when people were listening to Jesus talk about this, they're starting to think to themselves, you know, we're first century Jews. Jesus is a first century Jew, but we've never heard this before. In fact, they were saying he's teaching in a way that it's like a new authority. That, that's where they, say, they were saying this is authoritative. This, this is like, this is not just like any other teaching that our, our normal rabbi teachers teach us. This is coming with a certain weight to it that we've never heard of before. And so there were some probably in their minds that are thinking, okay, we grew up with the Hebrew scriptures, but this guy's saying something different. In fact, Jesus is going to go on to say, you know, you've heard it said but I tell you, now no prophet ever talked like that before. Every prophet leading up to this moment would always speak on behalf of God. You know, God said this, thus said the Lord. Jesus comes in and says, you heard it said, but I tell you. Different level of authority. And so the natural question in their mind is, man, all this stuff that we grew up with, believing, what do we do with that? That's the question we're going to wrestle with today. What do you do with the Bible? Because if you're like me going through this journey, you're thinking, man, this is so radical. What do you do with the Bible? And so Jesus is going to teach us something about the Bible today. And whether you grew up in church or whether this is your first day in church, 
This is a really important Sunday to be here, and it's going to get a little academic at times, you know, so I'm going to need you to put your geek glasses on uh, at, at some times, okay, because we're going to kind of dive in, nitty-gritty. We're going to get honest about all of this because the Bible's not a super popular thing in our culture today, but Jesus has something to say about it. So here's what we're going to say. Uh, we're going to learn what is the Bible and what it is, what it is not. We're going to learn, can we actually take its claims seriously? Should we trust them? And then third, what difference does it really make in our life? Okay, you ready? Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Here we go. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. Okay, the term law and prophets here. That was a a common phrase back then in in the first century that would actually sum up the entire Old Testament. And so what Jesus is saying here is saying, hey, you might be hearing me say some pretty fresh stuff that you may have never heard about before, but let me tell you this. Everything that you grew up with, those Hebrew scriptures, not only are they not wrong, but I've come to fulfill them. In fact, they're so true that what I'm about to do is actually to make them come to life. Jesus affirmed everything about the Bible in the Old Testament. And he goes a step further in verse 18. He says, for truly, I tell you, meaning pay attention, this is true, every word of it. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's saying that heaven and earth, the skies and the earth, that's literally, that's what the heavens meant back then. The heavens and the earth, like... These things will pass away before God's word does. God's word is eternal. It's actually beyond nature. It's supernatural. There's something about this that ought to penetrate who we are that goes way beyond the physical realm. He's saying it's powerful. And he he said the least stroke of a pen. Uh, In Greek, when this was written in Greek, uh, they were actually referring to the Greek letter iota, which is the smallest Greek letter. But what it was referencing was the Hebrew letter yod, which was the tiniest little letter in the, Greek, in, the, in the Hebrew alphabet. And this is what he's saying. Everything, everything in the original manuscripts that people wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, every bit of that is God-inspired and true. In fact, this is what another one of the, uh, the first eyewitnesses of Jesus in, in the letter 2 Peter wrote. He said, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, he didn't make this up. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is enduring. It is true. It's powerful. Now... It's one thing to say that and even hear that in our audience. And it's another thing to start having a conversation about that today, right? In the workplace, in the world. Because, man, what are some of the things we hear? This is one of the most, uh, this is one of the biggest barriers, I would say, for people actually embracing Jesus or coming to faith. The Bible. Because what do we hear? Common objections go something like this. How can you trust the Bible when it's historically unreliable? You can't trust its history and it's full of errors. Isn't the Bible hopelessly corrupt? It was written by people who had a power agenda, right? That's why we have it. They were just out to get something. It's changed so much over the years that what we have today is probably not anywhere close to what we had when it was originally written. And it's so outdated. It's stuff in my, like, why would I ever trust this as something relevant for my life today? 
This is an ancient document. Now, here, here's the reality. Um, I mean, this is just what's said. Uh, popular atheist Sam Harris, this is, what he, this is what he said. Maybe you guys have heard stuff like this, okay? Maybe this is where you are right now. Sam Harris wrote about uh, Christians and their, their kind of rugged belief in this. He said, tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt can make a man invisible and he's likely to require as much evidence as anyone. Tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe and he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. Have you explored if you are a follower of Jesus, have you actually explored the evidence for the reliability of this document? Now, I don't know if you knew this, but the, the Bible here is actually penned by 35 different authors over the, a period of over 1,000 years. And so it's not just one person who wrote this. It was actually a collection of people, again, that we believe were carried along by the Holy Spirit and written it down. But have you examined the evidence for this? If you haven't, we're gonna, there's no way we can cover this in the, the scope of the few minutes that we have today, but I want to whet your appetite for further exploration because it is a powerful journey to actually look at the evidence for this. You ready? Historically, let me just carry you historically through the reliability of this document. The reality is this. You can look this up for yourself. Believe me. There is no other ancient document that even comes close to the reliability of the Bible. Back in the 1960s, uh, there was a shepherd boy, this tiny little shepherd guy who stumbled upon some caves right around the Dead Sea in Israel uh, known as the Qumran Caves. And the Qumran Caves uh, have, at the time, this is crazy. This is one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in the past millennium. Um, they stumbled upon these ancient documents known now as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what they found were uh, that these scrolls dated to well before the time of Jesus Christ, thousands of years earlier. Uh, and they had uh, every single one of the Old Testament books in it except Esther. And they actually believe that Esther was a part of that. But so many of them, when the, when the shepherds first came in and people were stealing from those caves, they destroyed a lot of these ancient documents that were so fragile that if you just walked into the room, they'd start disintegrating. There were hundreds and hundreds of these documents that were copied and copied and copied. And you know what? What we have written in our Old Testament today is almost word for word with what was written then, thousands of years ago. Now, we think, some of us are tempted to think, well, man, you know, those were ancient people. They didn't kind of keep accurate logs like we do. The reality is they kept better logs than we do. All we got to do is copy, paste, copy, paste, you know, and just like, you know, sometimes we lose a lot of uh, details in our, in our messages because we're just so haphazard and we're so fast about it. These people weren't. When they looked at their Hebrew scriptures, they treasured them so much that they took meticulous detail to copy every single part of it. And not just, you know, word for word, they, they were beautifully written, ornately written. They had scribes looking over their shoulders as they were copying it the whole time. That's how precious this was. In fact, they had dances. <laughs> you know, like, you're like, like, you know, God, praise God that Scott's not dancing around with the Bible in his hands on Sundays. But they actually had dances to celebrate how precious this was. That's how special it was to them. So that's, now that's, that's only the Old Testament. The New Testament, this is crazy. The manuscript evidence that we have for the New Testament is off the chart. Any reliable historian will look at what the New Testament has as far as manuscript evidence across the centuries and say there is not even a close parallel in any other ancient document. This is, so let, let, me, let me show you this. You ready? You guys throw those, those uh, images up on the screen for me. Um, 
comparing a couple of ancient documents in history to the New Testament. Okay, this is the first one. So Thucydides, I'm not, I'm not a Greek scholar, okay, so I don't even know how to pronounce his name. But Thucydides, uh, <clears throat> 460 B.C. to 365, um, he wrote something uh, that we have now eight copies of. And it's a history, and a lot of historians will actually include a lot of his stuff in history books, and we see it as pretty authoritative, uh, as very accurate, very true. But we only have eight copies of them. And the earliest manuscript that we have is 1,300 years after it was originally written. Think about all that can happen in 1,300 years. But we still count it as authoritative. The second one, we've got Aristotle's Poetics. The earliest one that we have, and of the five remaining copies that are there, are 1,400 years removed from its original dates. Next one, we got the biographies of Alexander the Great. We have two existing copies, and the earliest one is 400 years after the events described. So in other words, uh, we take as reliable, as historical, these documents, even though they've been removed uh, by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, we, we, still, we, think that we still think they're pretty accurate. Let me tell you what the New Testament's like. We have over 25,000 ancient manuscripts about the New Testament. And it's not, the earliest one that we have is not dated thousands of years or hundreds of years. It's within a lifetime. There's not an ancient document that even comes close now, the crazy thing is that some of these were written, uh, you know, the first three there, they were written for emperors, for important people, about, you know, all, all, some of the major things that happened. Do you know what the New Testament was written about? A carpenter, a lowly Jewish carpenter. And yet we've got 25,000 manuscripts about that guy and not about uh, um, Alexander the Great. Why is that significant? Think about this. If we have this many copies about a document about a Jewish carpenter, and he was lowly, he didn't have political advantage over other people, he didn't upend anybody through wars or by, you know, outsmarting or outdueling or outmoneying anybody, like he didn't do any of that, then shouldn't we at least pay attention to what his life really was? If the world has not looked anything like it did before Jesus, and we have this kind of manuscript evidence, ought we to at least be curious about who he is? Now, here's the second thing about this. Historically, that's true. Um, but here's the other thing. Um, boy, there's so much to go into this, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to skip over some of it really quickly. The stuff that is written in the New Testament is far too counterproductive for it to be uh, legend. A lot of people look at this and say, man, it was just written by people who wanted to get power and agenda over other, other people. It was far too counterproductive for the early leaders for it to be legend. Here's why. If you were writing something to make it up, and to try to leverage that document for your own political power, would you make stuff up about yourself that was horrible? Would you paint yourself in a terrible light over and over and over and over again? The early leaders of the church look like idiots in the Gospels. They're constantly stumbling over themselves. They're constantly saying things that are counter, uh, you know, counteract what Jesus is saying. They look like idiots. You don't write that stuff unless it's true. The other thing is the, their leader, Jesus, was painted in the Garden of Gethsemane as weak and crying out to God, God, let this pass from me. I don't want this. And on the cross, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't paint that about your leader unless it's true. 
You also don't include women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection about Jesus in the first century if you were making this stuff up uh, out of credibility. Women's testimony in the first century was not admissible in a court of law. They wouldn't pay attention to it as, as worth anything. I know that's different in the 21st century. Praise God for that. I got three daughters, you know, way to go. Uh, but in the first century, women's testimony counted for nothing. So why would every one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all say that women were the first eyewitnesses? Unless it's true. We have to ask ourselves, as the evidence is mounting, and there's nothing to gain politically from any of this, and that 10 out of the first 12 of Jesus' apostles were actually martyred for their faith, and that didn't take away from the movement, it actually exploded the movement more. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus that this Bible is talking about? Now, the last thing that Jesus wants us to understand here is that this book is not just any book. It is a collection of writings that is truly not just inspired by God, but authoritative for our life. Meaning that what we read in here actually has power over us. And he's calling us to trust in his word written for us. Jesus said it this way in, uh, in verse 19. It says, therefore, anyone who sets aside, this is Matthew chapter 5, going to the next verse, verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Meaning you got to teach it and you got to practice it. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying this, that there's something in this and what Jesus has written to us that actually has power. It has power. Now, the crazy thing is that we live in a day right now where you can kind of pick and choose, right? I've, I've known a lot of people who uh, I'll talk to and they'll say, yeah, you know what? The Bible's inspiring. I like some of it, but not all of it. You know, I don't like all of it. There's no way you can believe all of it is actually true. Jesus is saying something very different. Let me tell you why that pick and choose uh, approach is dangerous. Uh, in a household, who gets to set the rules? Mom and dad, right? Now, could you imagine for a second? Uh, uh, so I heard one pastor say that he has just two household rules, just two. Uh, one of them is honor your mother. It's a great rule. And the other one is don't lie. Fair, right? If you had just two household rules and those were the only ones, those are fair rules, right? Now, could you imagine if a kid came up to mom and said, you know what, mom? Uh, love the first rule. Great. You know, honor your mother, but uh, I don't really like the second one. I'm just going to not choose to listen to that. Okay. Is that all right? Now, at that point, like, I mean, where's that kid going to be? That's not exactly a great position to be in moving forward. All right. The reality is the kid doesn't get to set the rules. And so you can't pick and choose. Here's what happens when you pick and choose. When the daughter says, hey, I don't want this, but I like this, who is she saying is in authority? She is. Because she gets to set the agenda. She's saying, I'm in charge, you're not. Anybody ever struggle with that with your kids, okay? All right. Anyway, uh, all right. Wow, I was going to go on a soapbox for a while there. All right, look, parenting is real, is it not? Okay, anyway, uh, so Jesus, what he's saying here is, like, you can't get to pick and choose. Either God's on the throne or you are. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, either the word of God is an authority over you or you are in an authority over it. Now, just hear me out on this one. If God is who he says he is, that he's almighty, all wise, all loving, all good and all that, and he wrote creation into existence, not me, 
then wouldn't you expect that he'd actually conflict with my opinion sometimes? That, I mean, just as you say to your kids, hey, you know, I, don't, I love that you went trick-or-treating today, but you only get to have one candy, you know? How well does that sit with all your kids? Not so well, all right? They, they want the whole bag right away. You know, they didn't like that. It's not fair. No, I earned this candy. I walked it up to that creepy guy's door, asked for it. He gave it to me, okay? I earned that candy. Wouldn't we expect, though, that a God who knows what's best for us, that there might be some moments of conflict between us and him, and he might know better. Jesus is saying, yeah, he does know better, and he loves you. But here's the crazy thing. Jesus takes it one more step further, and here's where Jesus kind of lands on this one. You ready? Not only is it authoritative, but it ought to produce something in your life that actually exceeds what most people in that day thought was even possible. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the way that you obey me in this has to exceed the people who followed the Old Testament to a T. Now, if you're like me, at that point, you're just like, all right, I'm gone. (laughs) I can't follow that. I can't live up to that. Now, here's the, this is the most shocking thing that Jesus has said all morning, as if Jesus was right here. So Jesus, he said, it's got to be more than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they broke down the Old Testament into 613 commandments, 248 positive and 365 negative. Uh, I was doing some research on that this week, and uh, basically they had one negative thing to say every single day. Awesome people to be around, Right. No. Okay. Um, but they broke it into all of those. And they actually, what they did is they, they, did, they didn't raise the bar. What they did is that they actually tried to lower the bar so that it was possible for us to attain all of them. And so they made these caveats and these changes to try to make everything so attainable. In fact, you know, God said, hey, it's not good for people to divorce. And uh, the Pharisees were just like, well, I, you know, maybe in this case it could be. And yeah, maybe in this case it could be. And, you know, they did that all the time. They were constantly trying to skirt around it so that they could still check off every single religious box and be okay. Jesus said, your righteousness has got to exceed that. In fact, what he did is Jesus didn't lower the bar, he raised the bar. As we look at this, Further on in this message, and this is going to be the hard news for us today, okay? It's super hard for me. But Jesus said it's not only not okay to commit adultery. I'm going to take it one step further and say that if you look at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. He's saying not only is it not okay for you to be angry with somebody, or or not okay to not murder somebody, but if you're angry with them in your heart, you've already committed murder. Now, here's the reality. If you're listening to all of this and you're listening to what Jesus has to say in his word, you're thinking, if you're like me, you're just like, how in the world can anybody keep this? In fact, this is what maybe some of you have stumbled into churches in and thought, man, I'll never go back. Because I felt so unworthy, so guilty, so full of shame. I've had some people say, there's no way I'm going to step foot inside the doors of a church because I feel like it's going to burn down before I walk in there. Meaning, I'm not worthy. There's no way that I'm going to measure up to that standard. If you've ever felt that way before, you are welcome here. Because I felt like that so many times. Unworthy, I don't measure up, I'm not good enough. And God said, yeah, that's the point. That's the point. You see, there's something on the inside of us that's wrong. 
It's not the behavior that God's looking for. He's looking for something a lot deeper than that. He's looking for the heart. And he knows that there's something wrong inside the heart, almost like an illness, like a cancer that he's got to pull out. And we can't do that on our own. The word of God and the standard and the holiness of God is actually meant to point out the fact that we can't do this on our own. There's this famous wrestling match that a a man named uh, Paul had, and he writes about this, and it's so honest. I have to share this with you, so kind of bear with me as I read through this, because it's so honest. It's probably going to hit you like it hit me, like, sign me up. That's where I am, okay? This is what Paul said in his struggle with the law. He said, is the law sinful? He asked this question in in Romans chapter 7. He said, is the law sinful? No way. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Like if I told you right now, hey, don't look at the guy undressing in the corner back there. What's your temptation? You want to look back there right now, don't you? Yeah, put that shirt back on. Please put that shirt back on. Okay, Uh, just kidding. All right, all right, that's really weird. Okay, anyway, look, I I would not have known what sin was if I had not yet said, like, this is what it is. So... I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, don't covet. As soon as it's like, don't covet, then we know, like, okay, now I know what not to do, except I want to do it. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. But once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. There's a death on the inside of us because we know that we're not perfect. Sign me up. I'm not perfect. In fact, we told people early on in the first couple of years, there's no perfect people allowed in this church, all right? If you're perfect, please walk out now. Once I was alive, now I died. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is good. It just shows me that I'm not. Now he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. This is verse 14. Sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Anybody ever been there? (laughs) I want to do something good, but there's something on the inside of me that's pulling me this way. No, I want to do something good, but, you know, sin is pulling me back. And I just, man, why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep doing it? I get back there time and time again. Why do I keep doing that? It's sin. He says, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, I, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's actually sin living inside me. It's this, this thing that's eating me from the inside out. For, um, for I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now, I, if, I do not, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who's doing it, but it's actually sin in me that's doing it. It is a literally cancer. If you've ever had cancer or known someone who's wrestled with cancer, it literally has a life of its own. And it's going to, to rip you from the inside out. It's going to destroy you one bit by bit. I mean, it, is, it has a life of its own. You cannot beat it. Your body literally has to die in order to come back to life to beat it. And so he says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another one at work within me. And then he cries out. He said, what a wretched man I am. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that. But there have been some moments where I've been rude to my wife, unkind to my kids. And I just find myself in my room thinking, man, what a wretched man I am. 
Who will rescue me from this body? Now, when you get to a place like that, you come to the end of yourself. And when you come to the end of yourself, you know that you need some help from the outside, right? That's what the law does. It tells us that we need help beyond what I got right now. And that's why Jesus tells us that the word is powerful because what it does is it points us back to our Savior. That we need Jesus. In fact, this book is not about you. This is about Jesus. And every part of it has been written to tell us that we were in trouble. We were apart from God, separated from him because of sin. And we needed something outside of ourselves. We needed Jesus. We needed the son of God to come in, someone who is perfect to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died in our place to heal us back to God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Every single part of the Old Testament was written to point us back to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. Meaning everything that this talked about, it's supposed to point you back to me so that you'd find all of your hope, all of your meaning, all your significance, all of your identity and purpose in me. Because I've come to rescue you. When you were hopeless and you had cancer eating you from the inside out in sin, I've come to, to peel that away so that you'd have no more barrier between you and God anymore. One pastor said, this is what Jesus does. In the Old Testament, Jesus is the point of every story, the point of every regulation, the point of absolutely everything. He is the point of the ceremonies, the sacrificial systems, the priests. He was the point of all of that to show us that we need Jesus. He was the point of every prophet because every prophet was supposed to show us the ultimate way and the ultimate truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was the point of every priest. Uh, it, was to, it was to point us to, the, back, to, the, to the, the reality that we needed hope and healing in Jesus Christ. That's what the priesthood showed. Jesus is the ultimate priest. He is the ultimate king that rules beautifully and wonderfully and lovingly and not uh, deceivingly and abusingly. Jesus is the ultimate king. Mark Clark said, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is given to us. Jesus is the true and better Abraham answering the call of God to go out into the void and to create a new people of God. Jesus is a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory even though they didn't lift a stone to accomplish it. Colossians 2.17 says that the Old Testament was a shadow of what Jesus actually accomplished. And just as in a shadow, you don't get the full picture. In fact, it might even be scary or creepy until you actually look at the person whose shadow that is. That's what the Old Testament was and that's what Jesus is. When you stare at Jesus and what he did for you, the guilt and the shame melts away because you realize in one moment the perfect God who required us to be perfect became perfect for us so that we could be healed forever. That is the power of the word of God. And I'm telling you right now, apart from Jesus, you cannot understand this. And apart from Jesus, we can't understand what obedience is. This is what the law looks like. Chair, can you throw that up on the screen, that first image there with the box around it? When we look at rules and regulations, it becomes a massive barrier between us and God. This is what it looks like when Jesus is not in the picture. When Jesus is in the picture, he creates a bridge that bridges the gap between us and God. 
And at that point, obedience is not something that we have to, have to, have to, have to. No, obedience becomes the way that we engage God in a beautiful relationship for all eternity. You see, rules and the commands of God were never a condition of a relationship. They were the confirmation of one. Charity and I, in our marriage, we have a rule um, that we will not meet one-on-one in, an, in, an, in a lonely room with a person of the opposite gender. Now, we could say that's legalism. That's legalism. Why would you enforce that on each other? That's not fair. That's not freedom. I'm telling you right now, it's the most loving thing that we could ever give to each other because we treasure our relationship together. Protecting our marriage like that is something we will never give up on because not, not so that we could have a relationship, but because we already do. And so obedience to the word of God becomes this, this confirmation that we already have a relationship with God. God never meant for this to be your pathway to a relationship with him. Jesus always was. Following this then, then becomes the way that we walk and we live in that relationship. And that's why this is so powerful. Maybe for some of you today, as I'm going to invite the band to come and play, maybe for some of you, you've never known this. Maybe for some of you in this room, you've never known that God actually paved the way for you and became perfect for you and died a death, lost his life for you so that you could have a relationship with him forever, so that you could talk to him and you could know him Maybe you've never known that, and I want you to know that today that can change. All it takes is to put your faith and your trust in the one who gave it all. That's it. He's not asking you to jump through a ton of hoops. He's not asking you to complete A through Z on the checklist of religious duties. All he's doing is to say, I trust you, Jesus, and I thank you for wiping that slate clean for me. Today, I want to follow you and not me anymore. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite us to pray right now. And in just a second, we've got this baptism tank that some of you are like, man, what even is this? We're going to articulate to you what really happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And so my buddy Sam, Sam, uh, I was going to say you can go change, but you're already changed. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to pray. And if there's anyone in this room that wants to trust Jesus for the first time, I want to invite you to do that with me right now. Let's pray. Jesus, you know every heart. You know every mind in this room, even before we walked in. And my prayer right now, God, is that we do business with you right now. We get right with you. And there may be some in this room who didn't even know that they needed to get right with you today. But they didn't know also of the hope that they have because of what you've done for them. God, in my prayer right now is that we would lose our pride And we get to the place where we can say, Jesus, I want you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you, God, for eliminating my sin by becoming a curse for me. Thank you that I don't have to jump through those hoops. Thank you, God, that you came not to abolish all the rules and regulations, but you came to fulfill them for my sake so that I could know you and follow you. I trust you today. If that's your prayer today, I want you to know that all of heaven is rejoicing and there's no greater party than what God is throwing right now. 
and you can know that today you had a fresh start and a clean heart. God, we thank you so much for the hope that we have in you. And we thank you so much for what you've done, the price that you paid so that we could have a relationship with you. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We love you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, one of the greatest privileges that we have is to do baptism. Um, (laughs) And I'm gonna let our band sing one song, uh, but in just a second, I'm gonna introduce a new friend of mine. And we're gonna get to show you what new life really looks like. So would you stand and would you sing with us?